in Revelation chapter 3 tonight. We're going to start in verse 7. And I'm going to, I'm going to read the letter to the church at Philadelphia. And uh, then we'll spend a little bit of time taking a look at this great church. The Bible says in verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who shuts, or excuse me, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you've kept my commandment to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And Father, tonight we want to thank you for just the testimony of this church. God, we're grateful for these believers that were so steadfast, were so focused. God, we're so undistracted by what I'm sure were many things that could have stumbled them. God, many things that they could have been embroiled in. God, many things that have, could, could have consumed their attention. And yet, God, this truly is the Great Commission Church focused on your mission and blessed because of it. Father, I pray that in these tumultuous times, even within the church, that you would help us to be centered on what matters most to you. And God, we confess sometimes we're just so easily distracted, but God, we want our lives to count. We want our church to be involved in what matters to you, God, in those things that last forever. And so tonight I pray that there would be lessons we could learn from this church and promises that we could receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know, I've said it before and I'll, I'll say it again. It'll come as no shock to you that this is my favorite church of all of the churches that are uh, presented in the book of Revelation. And, you know, I mean, obviously, it's really between two churches because there are only two churches that Jesus just has commendation for and no correction for. One was Smyrna and the other one is Philadelphia. And, you know, who really wants to be the suffering church, right? I mean, not many of us are like, hey, me, you know, I think I would like suffering in my life. Um, but even more than that, I appreciate how this church really did keep, and I hate to say it kind of like in a rhetorical, um, obvious way, but I love how this church kept the main thing the main thing. I really do believe this is a church for us to aspire to. You know, if there's any church that we try to model ourselves after, it is uh, this church, the Church of Philadelphia. And for evident reasons, like I'm going to mention tonight, in particular, that this was a great commission church. And you know, if you just step back and you think about the church culture of the time, you know, just think about 
Think about how many churches are in the city of Las Vegas and how different um, all of the churches are. And how, and let me just say this, that we have solid churches in this city. And I'm definitely not just talking about the Calvary chapels. I'm talking about across the board, Lutheran, non-denomination, SBC. We've got some great churches in the city of Las Vegas, which you can affirm tonight because it's good. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. You know, and who would have thought? Who would have thought that there would be great churches in this city? Um, but there are great churches in this city. And yet at the same time, you know, there's still a lot of, a lot of turbulence, a lot of turmoil, even a lot of confused, confusion among churches in this valley. Well, you know, it was no different uh, around 96 AD in Asia Minor. And you know that's the case because if you just read the letters to these churches, you, you can see you don't have to be a theologian to, to understand that these churches were really literally all over the map. I mean, they were all dealing with different things. Many of them had been distracted um, by the things of the world, by paganism, by idolatry, by uh, Caesar worship in uh, the Roman temples. There had been a, a syncretism that had crept in where they had bound their Christian faith to, to pagan ideas and concepts. Uh, there was a, a, a bullying uh, of, the, of the laity by the leadership. Uh, there was sexual impropriety. There was uh, a lax uh, among the leaders of really holding fast the line on solid doctrine and making sure that practice uh, among the leaders in the church aligned with the doctrine that was being preached. And that was just among these seven churches. And, you know, I think, look, I don't think it's, out of the realm of reasonable to say, you know, Lord, it was crazy then. And in that crazy church culture, which of the churches really were able to navigate it in a way that was pleasing to you, where they really didn't maintain in their hearts what mattered most to you? And frankly, I believe it's the church at Philadelphia. I believe it's the church of Philadelphia. And why was the church like this? Well, you know, in part, it goes back to what Pastor Jim was saying as he was leading us in communion. They kept the cross of Christ front and center. They never drifted. You know, what, what makes a, a church so committed to the Great Commission in, in turbulent cultural times? Well, it's not taking your eyes off Jesus. That's, that's, what, that's what keeps us going in the right direction. And this church, there's no doubt this church is to be commended for it. Uh, there was a biblical sanity in this church. They were really focused on what mattered most to the Lord. So as we read through this, you know, the, the normal layout uh, minus the correction piece, he says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? So, so Philadelphia, um, obviously a city in the area of Asia, Asia Minor, just about 25 miles southeast of Sardis. Um, so we're talking the same valley that the city of Sardis w was in, but just located about 25 miles from that city. If you go to uh, current, if you go to ancient Philadelphia, I can't remember what the name of the city is today. It just escapes uh, my memory. But there, there are no, there's a, a little ruin of, you know, a Byzantine era church, but that's really all that there is to see with respect to church history. There aren't even really a lot of Roman ruins. There's some really good Turkish food. You can get some great lamb kebabs, but, but pretty much what you do if you go with, with us 
um, is we have a study in, the, in, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. We see some ruins of a Byzantine-era church, and, and we talk about one of the greatest churches, I think, uh, in church history. The word Philadelphia is a compound Greek word, philos, which is love, not agape, not storge, not eros, but uh, philos is like a, the love that's shared between friends. And um, Adelphia, Adelphos is brother, so Philadelphia literally means the city of brotherly love. We have a city in the United States called Philadelphia, just in case you were wondering, um, that word means the city of brotherly love. And that's true unless the Philadelphia Eagles are having a bad season, and then there's no love whatsoever, all right? That's a tough city to be a football player in if you're not having a good year. The city was named after a Pergamus king named Atlas Philadelphus, and he had dedicated this city to his brother, uh, whom he loved very much, and so there's a lot of symbolism there. It was known for its vineyards um, and the wines that were produced from the vineyards. It was a very small, this is significant, it was a very small but opulent city, and it was opulent. It was wealthy because it sat on a major trade route, so all of the trade that came from the east to, uh, towards the west that ultimately went into Africa and then up to Western Europe, all of that came right through the city of Philadelphia. Um, in the Byzantine era, it was a chief city, but it was a very, very pagan culture. It also played a very significant role, and a lot of people don't know this, but it was the city of Philadelphia that was really responsible for evangelizing the known world with the Greek culture and the Greek language. Um, this is the, the Hellenistic aspect, uh, the Hellenization of the world. This was the era after Alexander the Great where Greek culture just had a radical influence over the known world. And the Greek language, Koine Greek, be became the common language that was spoken um, across many, many cultures. And, you know, this is important. You say, well, why did God send Jesus when he sent him? Well, you know, it was, it was after the Roman road was established and after the Hellenization of the known world where the vast majority of the world was speaking the same language. And, and as, you know, the Christians went out to preach, they had the pathway to get there because of the Roman roads and they could speak the, a common language that everyone else was speaking. Well, why was that the, the case? Because the people in the city of Philadelphia took their Greek culture very seriously, and they made it their intention to evangelize. And I'm using the word, you know, it's a religious term, but I'm using it, you know, in a secular sense here, um, but you get the picture. They really did believe it was a mandate that they had to influence the rest of the world with, with Greek culture. Um, the city was probably not large. Uh, because it not only was it sitting on a very significant trade route, but it was also sitting on uh, a fault line. So it was kind of like sitting on the San Andreas Fault, but you know, in ancient uh, Asia Minor. And because of that, there were many, many earthquakes. You know, the, the people in the city of Philadelphia really did live, historically we know this, in kind of a, a state of just um, chronic panic because they never knew when the next big earthquake was going to come. And so there was a sense of impermanence in this city. You know, there was, and this is going to kind of uh, work out with what Jesus says as a reward to those Christians who are steadfast and faithful. But they always 
seemed to live in this city with a sense of impending terror or impending doom. They didn't know when the next big quake was going to happen. Uh, and then the Romans, after many different earthquakes, the Romans uh, eventually rebuilt the city and named it Neo Caesarea, uh, which, which means, you know, uh, new Caesarea. They, the Romans gave the city a new name, and that matters as well as we look at the promises that Jesus gave to this church. Um, it is interesting. This is maybe my favorite historical point, is, uh, the last one I'm going to make about this church. Maybe my favorite point is this. Of all of the seven churches, this was the last church standing uh, over the course of uh, years. So this church actually, unlike all of the other churches, resisted Muslim influence well into the 14th century AD. And so, you know, the blessing that Jesus gives to this church was played out uh, in a really practical way over the course of time. If you have a study Bible um, and there's a title in your Bible about this church, maybe uh, your study Bible calls this the Faithful Church or um, the Mission Church or the Great Commission Church or the Little Church That Could. Okay, your Bible probably doesn't say that, but, but this church is kind of like that. Um, and they not only love the Lord Jesus, very evident, you know, very simple letter, so totally encouraging. Um, part of my life is based upon the letter uh, that Jesus writes or Jesus dictates that's ultimately given through an angel to a servant to John. Um, you know, I've built a lot of my life off of this particular letter. And, um, you know, this is when I have the opportunity to speak in different churches, you know, oftentimes this is the letter that I'll read because it's just so encouraging. The revelation that he give, gives of himself is this, these things says he who is holy. So just a reminder that he is holy. I mean, there are a lot of things that could be said here there are, because there are a lot of things that he is, right? I mean, I think about the seraphim that were flying around the throne of God. You know, when Isaiah was caught up and he saw that beautiful vision in Isaiah chapter 6, and there were many things that those seraphim could have been singing to God. They could have said, loving, loving, loving. They could have said, gracious, gracious, gracious. You know, they could have said, merciful, merciful, merciful. But they said something else, and they said so for a reason. They called him holy. It refers to the manifest perfection of God. You know, there are, if you take a diamond and you set it on that black velvet and you shine light on it, the light reflects off of all of the different facets. You see the beauty of that singular diamond, but you see it reflected in so many different ways. Um, in, a, in a way, that is what we mean when we say that God is holy, that there are all of these perfections with respect to Him. And we have the opportunity, as we consider His holiness, to to think about, to meditate on all of these beauties of God. I love the word because it is a word that gives us the capacity to express our total adoration for his character. You know, when we say that God is holy, and you know, look, I, I mean, this is totally subjective, okay? It's a subjective statement, but um, there's something that happens when the church sings holy, holy, holy. I mean, there's just something that, I don't care what song it is. You know, step back for a second and just pay attention to what happens among the people of God when we sing about the holiness of God. And I, I don't think that it's just because we're reiterating um, words that are 
sung by the seraphim. I don't even think sometimes there's that mental connection. I think there's a spiritual thing that's happening as we're expressing um, adoration for him in the highest possible way that we can. And you know, in that moment when we're declaring that, it, it, is, it is in a way saying, God, we adore you so completely and we're summing up your absolute beauty and transcendence by saying to you, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Father, holy is the Son, and holy is the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible calls Jesus the Holy One. You know, in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, uh, the angel said, The Holy One who is to be born shall be called the Son of God. And as you consider the messianic statements that are contained in Isaiah chapters uh, 40 to 50, what you'll recognize is that he, Messiah, the second person of the triune Godhead, is called uniquely the Holy One. The Bible says um, that speaking, speaking uh, of the rejection by the children of Israel of the Messiah, it says this, you denied the Holy One and just. And then in addition to that, John says this in his first epistle, you have an anointing from the Holy One. So he is, Jesus is holy. And when we express that word, it's not just, it's not the same as identifying a particular trait or attribute. We are summing up our adoration for his character when we say that. And I think it's a great thing to do. He is, amen, are you with me tonight on that? He is true. All right, he is true. John said this uh, concerning him, that in an, in an absolute way, we beheld, his, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Right, I mean, John himself in his gospel account is summing up the observations of the apostles as they uniquely had that opportunity to walk with Jesus. And, and he says, we beheld, listen, he our gaze, our full attention was fixed upon him. We couldn't take it off of him. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And then he uses two, two terms that are so important to, for us to maintain together, full of grace and truth. He is the one who conforms, or, or listen, let me, let me flip it around because I don't want to say it like that. All reality and fact conforms to him. All reality, in fact, conforms to him because Jesus Christ is ultimate truth. He is ultimate truth. I am the way, right? There's a definite article before the word way, but that definite article is implied in every following word. So you could say, uh, rightly, as you're translating that portion of scripture, when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, exactly that, they're not implied definite articles, because you'll notice in your translations, they're not italicized. He is the way, he is the truth, he is ultimate truth, all of reality, and all of fact conforms to him, and he is the life. He is the standard. Listen, if there's confusion in your life, if there's like a cloud that's hanging over you and you're having a difficult way either seeing forward or maybe perceiving yourself or considering other people, get your eyes off of yourself, get your eyes off of other people, get your eyes off of your circumstances and get your eyes onto him. And as you get your eyes onto the truth, because that's exactly what he is, 
He will, he will clear up all of the confusion that seems to be hanging over you. Have you experienced that in your life, man? You know, maybe it's just like you have a, a really tough decision coming up and you just don't know what to do and you're, you're, you're doing the whole pros and cons exercise and you're talking to your friends and, and you're really crazy. You're going to social media and, you know, you're just like every avenue, every na- avenue. And the, the, more you, the, more, the more you look into things and, and play that game and sometimes even get uh, people's opinions, just the more spun out you, you become. And it's not until you just take a minute to pause and get some space and set your eyes back on Jesus that the way becomes clear for you. Maybe you have a, a challenging, difficult decision, decision that's set before you. Uh, the, the most important thing for you to do is just to get that time of, of space and solitude and to set your mind upon the Lord and to believe that as you trust in Him with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but as you acknowledge Him in all of your ways, He will guide your path. He has the keys of David, or He has the key of David, and He says this, I mean, all of this is a, is a direct quote from Isaiah uh, 22, 22, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now, you know, when, when this is said in Isaiah 22, 22, it's referring specifically to Eliakim, who was David's chief servant, who had the keys to all of the wealth that David had collected uh, for the kingdom. And so this was the individual that had the key to all of it. He could open the door. He could shut the door. He was the prime minister, in a sense. He was the administrator over all of the wealth. He had that authority. It had been delegated to him by David. Well, it's a messianic uh, statement, really. It's not just referring to Eliakim. It's looking forward to the Messiah, because all of the full inheritance of the Father was given to the Son, and He is the one. Jesus is the one that opens and closes the door specifically with respect to salvation. He is the one that provides entrance. He is the one that bars the way. Listen, when someone gets to heaven uh, and if they've, if they've denied Christ, it's not just that they'll be separated from God for eternity because of the, of the collective sin that they've done over the course of their life. They'll be subject to the condemn, condemnation of God because they've rejected the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was, was dead and buried, and he, that he rose again the third day. And that's the only way for us to gain entrance into everlasting life is by faith in his, in his name. There is no other name given among men, Peter said, by which we must be saved. The Bible says on that day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He is the one who has the authority with respect to salvation, but also what we see is he also has authority over all other things. So that is uh, identification, that is that piece of revelation, and now we're going to get into commendation These things says, oh, sorry, verse 8, I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So the first piece of commendation um, is 
you know, a reiteration, like he has said to all of the other churches, I'm fully aware of what's happening in the church, you know, I, it's, it's not unknown to me. I see all things, you know, in a collective sense and also in an individual sense. And before he gets to a commendation, he gives them a commission. He gives them this beautiful commission, this wonderful opportunity. This is such a, a unique expression among all of the letters to these churches. He says, see, I've set before you an open door and no one can shut it. I mean, I love this because what Jesus is saying is, my commendation for you begins with opportunity. My commendation, my affirmation of the good things that I see happening in the church means for you that you are going to have another opportunity to serve me, that in fact, I'm going to be working a miracle in your life so that you are going to be able to experience something that is above and beyond what you could ever imagine or think. But, but first, he says, you have to see it. You have to see it. This is how he starts that whole section. He says, see You've got to be looking. You've got to be paying attention. This was a church that was paying attention. Just like they'd been paying attention in the, in the past, he's calling them now to pay attention in the present. I don't, I want to say this, and I'm going to say it really quickly, but I just want to remind us that just because God worked in your past, as great as that, that was, doesn't mean that you can just live off of past experiences and not experience him in the present. You know, you need to, you, you did see, hey, God bless you. You saw. You saw what God was doing. You were involved. You were engaged. You served in the church. You had a position. You had a role. You had an opportunity. That is great. You're, you're to be commended for that. But yesterday is over. What are you doing today? What are you seeing today? Are your eyes open today? Is your heart hungry to experience him today? You know, we can't rest on yesterday's laurels. And this for sure was a church that was unwilling to do that. They were watching. They were paying attention. He says, see, I've set before you an open door. I placed it there. The door is open. I don't know if it was a crack. I don't know if it was just wide open. But the truth is this, Jesus open the door, and when Jesus opens a door, no one can shut it. No one can shut it. You know, he, I, I think it's interesting what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, hey, I've set before you an open door, and I'm going to force you through it. He doesn't say, I've set before you an open door, and I'm going to coax you into it. He doesn't say, I'm going to manipulate you into it. He doesn't say, I'm going to plead with you, and I'm going to beg with you for you to go through this door. He sets before us an open door. He set before this church an open door, and you know what? They had, to, they had to make the choice. They had to choose to walk through it. You know what that is? That's faith. That is faith. Faith is something that is living in our life. Faith is something that's demonstrated. It's not just spoken. This is why James hits the issue of faith so hard. For, for James, you know, he's not really, he's not, he for sure is not presenting faith in a way where it's a works system through which we appease God and gain our salvation. He is just simply saying, if there's real faith in your life, it's going to be manifested. Don't talk about it. Don't just talk about it. Don't just express how much faith you have. Try really practically living it out. Be a doer of God's word and not just a hearer alone. You know, sometimes I think if we did 
our faith as much as we talked about our faith, how much more would be done for the glory of God? In a way where it's like, hey, let's stop talking about it and let's just start doing. You know, God sets before, I guarantee you tonight, if you're a child of God, there is a door of opportunity that God has set before you. I know that for a fact. How do I know that for a fact? Because God wants you to live by faith. And unless you have a door of opportunity before you, you won't walk by faith. He's always stretching our faith. You know, for me, I'm telling you, the steps of faith get harder. They don't get easier. There's stuff that God is calling us to right now that is, you know, they are the biggest steps of faith that we have ever taken as a church. You know, the building was a big step of faith. And I was talking to some people the other day, and I'm like, hey, you know what? That was yesterday's step of faith. We've moved on from that. I'm grateful. Don't get me wrong. But that was yesterday's step of faith. So what step of faith is he calling you to take today? And I'm not, I'm not saying that it has to be some massive monumental thing. Sometimes, it's, sometimes, they're, sometimes they're the small things, right? God, I'm going to trust you at, in my work you know, I'm going to go in tomorrow, and I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust that you're going to make a way. I'm going to trust that you're going to help me deal with this difficult relationship. God, I've got too much on my plate. You know what? I'm not going to carry it myself. I'm going to put it on your shoulders, and I'm going to trust you with it. You know, you go home tonight, and there's, there's difficulties and problems in your marriage, or maybe you have struggles with your kids, and you know there's an opportunity. The door of opportunity is open for you to trust the Lord with those things, Maybe you've been thinking, hey, I've, I know I have spiritual gifts, and I'm not sure what they are, but God is calling me out of where I've been into something else, and so what has he been speaking to you? You're going to take a step of faith. And you know what he doesn't say here? He's like, okay, I've got an open door, and here's you know, your first stop, and then here's your second stop, and then you're going to experience these 10 things. He does not fill it in. He does not fill the blank in. You know, it's like you're looking at this open door, but you can't see through it into the beyond. That's why it's a step of faith. And the truth is this, like some people say this, and I really don't know how I feel about it, but I'm going I'm to say it anyway, because it normally makes people say amen. I'm just kidding. That's not what I'm after, after tonight. But you know, sometimes if he did show us the whole picture, we'd be like, I'm not walking through that door. I'm not walking through that door because it's, it's just a little scary, you know, like, I know the children of Israel, they wanted out of Egypt, but could you imagine seeing all those obstacles and not necessarily knowing how it was that going to be that God worked all of them out? God, at the end of the day, we cross over that threshold. We go through that door. Some of us might push it open a little bit and peek around the corner, listen, whatever. Cross over the threshold. But when you cross over the threshold, trust the Lord that He is in control and God knows exactly what He is doing. You know, when, let me just say this because, you know, I'm kind of nitpicky when it comes to phrases like this that sometimes get, get, they get used for everything. But, but remember, when the Bible talks about open door, uh, like from a, a really, um, you know, from a narrow use of that phrase, every time it's used in Scripture... 1 Corinthians 16.9, 2 Corinthians 2.12, Colossians 4.3, it is always ultimately talking about the advancement of God's kingdom, right? So when we talk about an open door, we're not talking about something for our benefit. Hey, you know what? God opened a door and I got the Mercedes I've always wanted. No, like, no. Okay, no. 
Hey, God opened the door, and I've got this great house behind a you know, gated community or in a, in a gated community. And but we're not talking about God opening a door so that we can you know, have our, our, our flesh pacified or the desires of our flesh met. We're always talking about God using the platform that he's given to us for reaching people with the gospel. That's always how the New Testament uses that phrase. Tonight, we're going to talk a little bit later on, Pastor Brendan is, about some of the international missions work that um, we are engaged in. And you know what? This, this, the, 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 the testimony of this church from the perspective of church history was this. They had a city, okay, that historically was known for the, the uh, evangelization of the Hellenistic world. This church was known for its uh, evangelism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, it was the missions church, They were sending people out. They were super generous in their giving. They lived self-sacrificially because they valued the gospel above all other things. In fact, we, we know, we see this just in a moment, that they were even willing to lay their life down. So commendation starts with opportunity, but then he goes into, for you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So you have a little strength. The the Greek word here is, uh, well, the Greek words are mikros dunamos, so little power. You have little power. You have little strength. Um, some commentators say, well, this refers to, you know, maybe their financial capacity. It wasn't necessarily um, a very wealthy church. Other commentators say, no, this was probably a small church that had great spiritual vitality, A small church that had great spiritual vitality never think that just because a church is big that it is more spiritually powerful than a small church, okay? Never think that just because a church fits into the category of a megachurch that somehow that church has greater influence for the gospel than small churches. That is just not the case. And that's not how God values. That's not, not how, that's not the criteria by which God judges from. He judges from the criteria of faithfulness. So this was a small church, but it was a mighty church. Maybe, you know, you feel like you look at people that get used by God and you're like, man, I could never be that. You know, like that person's so powerful. We live in this era where um, People's gifts, we're so exposed to so many people's gifts. And you know, if we're not careful, we find ourselves comparing ourselves to other people. And it's like, man, you look at this person and that person and him and her and their platform. It's like, oh my gosh, how could I ever be used? God, how could I ever be used? But you know, you've not been called to compare yourself to other people. That's not what God has called you to. And what he says here is, you look, you may just have a little strength, but with me, you can do great things. Do you believe that tonight? I mean, God is not looking for you to be the next Billy Graham. You know, he's looking for you to be you, empowered by the Spirit, focused on the Scriptures, being willing to stand for the name of Christ. And that's what he says here. You have kept my word. Man, you have clung to, you have clinged, you've clung, you've clang. I'm not sure. It's something like that. You have held fast. You have held fast to the word. You've not stepped out of the prescription of Scripture. You've not stepped out of the boundaries. 
Hey, this is such a good reminder for us in a church age that has been so influenced by relativism, moral relativism, right? Hey, well, you know, I mean, the Bible, when it was written, it was written in ancient times. It's kind of anachronistic. Does it really apply to today? There's probably some moral issues that really, you know, moral prescriptions that don't apply to us because we've advanced as a culture, and so we're going to rewrite the rules. Well, you can't rewrite God's rules, You can't rewrite God's rules. What value system do you use? Whose subjective view of morality are you going to adopt? And let me tell you something. As the world drifts further and further away from God's value system, you're going to find yourself in a moral conundrum. And it's it's just going to be an issue of situational ethics. You doing what seems to be right in that moment. And that's not what the scripture says. We hold on to God's word, and we choose to stand boldly for the name of Jesus. There was a lot of persecution for them. There was opposition, particularly from the Jewish segment of that society. And so he says in verse 9, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. So they may have had the lineage but they did not have the heart. Same thing Jesus was talking about in John chapter 8 to those Pharisees. You know, they had the lineage, they had the pedigree, uh, they had the religious practice, but he said, you are of your father, the devil, right? That's what he said to them. And if you, you know, get mad at me sometimes for being too strong, just think about that for a minute. And then he reiterates it here. Look, they've got the pedigree, they've got the religious practice, but they lie. They're a synagogue of Satan. They're no different. They say that they speak on behalf of God, but they don't. And we know that they don't because they've opposed Messiah. And so he says, I'll handle your enemies. I'll handle your adversaries. Don't don't remember. Uh, God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. He says, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. He's not talking about these people, these Jews, worshiping Christians. He's talking about them being humbled and to know that I have loved you, to know that the love of Messiah rests upon their lives. I just want to encourage you tonight, if I can, to resist the instinct to take matters into your own hands. Resist the instinct Resist the instinct to return a reviling with a reviling. Resist the instinct to take vengeance out upon those who have withstood you. I'm not saying tonight that you can't draw a line in the sand and stand your ground on, on, on biblical matters. I'm not saying tonight that you have to cave and um, concede uh, to arguments that people have, you know, as they might be addressing your views on Scripture. I'm not saying that at all. No, you should stand strong in those areas. But we don't respond to those people who oppose us in the flesh. We respond to those people in the Spirit, and ultimately, we trust the Lord. God, you know what? You're able. You're able to handle my adversaries better than I can handle them myself. You know, I think this is particularly true. Let me just say this. This is just a little postscript tonight, but, you know, in the era of social media, I've just been listening to uh, a lot of different stuff, um, you know, a lot of different stuff, and people are talking. This is the consistent thing that I hear. They're talking about how toxic Twitter is, 
and how you can just get really caught up in just the adversarial nature or, or culture of Twitter, and you can find yourself consumed by it, right? I mean, you, you, you read your feed, and somebody says this to you, and so what do you do? You, you whip off in 240 characters or less, whatever it is, you know, a, a statement back, and it's just like a back and forth and back and forth. Like, if there ever was a place for us to, like, put it in the hands of God and trust Him, it's on social media, Look, it is, you're being baited. You are being baited by the adversary. And you, you'll never win that because your goal has to be more than just proving yourself right or trying to you know, project this image of being the one who is right. That's not your goal. Your goal is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And getting into an adversarial back and forth on social media does not advance the kingdom of God. I'm, I'm just telling you that. So don't, don't take the bait, right? And, don't, and in addition to that, don't try to re, reframe your adversarial use, use of social media as somehow a spiritual thing because it is not. <laughs> Verse 11, behold, oh, nope. Verse 10, because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world uh, to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, I'm going to just tell you, I do really strongly believe we're talking about um, a church. We're looking forward to a church that is, that is great commission faithful, that is going to be preserved from that period of time that we know to be called the Great Tribulation. Because Jesus refers to this period of time in a very unique way. And, you know, it, it is my view that, um, that there's no other way to, to interpret this. He's talking about a time where there will be a global tribulation, global catastrophe, you know, a global experience. We, we know as we, we read other scriptures, a global experience of the wrath of God is going to be a time that is so absolutely turbulent that it will be unlike any other time. And the way he words this can't be construed as, I will keep you through that time, because he doesn't say that. He says, I will keep you from that time. I will keep you from it. Um, so, so I would say, and you know, I know there are a lot of different opinions on this, and I fully do believe there's space for us to have a good, meaningful conversation about when the rapture happens, without categorizing uh, other people as heretics or really not within the, the body of believers, you know, not, not orthodox, not in the sense of Greek orthodox, but, you know, people who do really uh, believe in the truth of Scripture because the timing of the rapture is not an essential. It's not an essential of your faith. You know, your salvation is not going to depend on whether you're a post-tribber, a mid-tribber, a pre-rather, or you're pre, a pre-tribulationalist, right? I mean, look, there are opinions, and we have strong convictions, and it's okay for us to share those strong convictions. It is my strong conviction, since you've asked me, thank you so much, that, that the, the church is going to be seized up, taken away, uh, that it, we will be united with the Lord in the sky, and will be preserved from this time of great tribulation that will impact the whole world. And I think that, amen, I think that, so some people say, well, you know what, that just puts people in a place where they're not prepared, they're not ready. Excuse me, 
what are you talking about? Hey, what takes more discipline and diligence, being ready for the great tribulation or seeing Jesus face to face? Right? I mean, come on. What, are, what, are, what, are, what, what strikes a greater holy fear in your heart? Standing before the living God or walking through a time of great difficulty on the earth? Nothing should, should provoke you to get your P's and Q's. That's an old English... You know the, the, the etymology of that, your pints and quarts? I'm not advocating drinking tonight. I just wanted to let you know where that came from. <laughs> you know, nothing should inspire you to, to get it in order more than seeing Jesus Christ face to face. So don't give me that line, you know, about incentive. All right, verse 11. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, remember this city living in a place of impermanence, regular earthquakes, very difficult time, a renamed city, Neo-Caesarea. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Permanence. Permanence in the presence of God, the very dwelling place of God. You can be assured that as you put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you will live in the presence of God forever. Thank God for that. And he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. And I will write on him my new name. By the way, three celestial tattoos that I can't wait to get. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord, we love you. And Father, we're so thankful for your word tonight. Just shape our hearts, God. Shape our hearts. We want a new, fresh work of your Holy Spirit. God, we want to be aware. We want to be cognizant, God. We want, to be, we want our eyes to be wide open with respect to the opportunities that you set before us. God, we don't want to stand before you someday and see a litany of missed opportunity. God, we want to, we want to be in tune with what it is that you're doing, what you've called us to, God, what you have called this church to. And we know full well, God, only you're able to touch hearts so that we're burdened with what burdens you. Tonight, just, uh, just as we consider this church, you know, in this moment of, of prayer, you know, I, I want to challenge us. And listen, it, it's not really I want to challenge us. I think God wants to challenge us. God wants to challenge us. God wants us to bear on our hearts what he bears on his heart. You know, Paul said as he looked back on his religious life that he considered it rubbish, that he would know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And it wasn't just the physical adversity that Paul was talking about when he said the fellowship of his sufferings. He was talking about, you know, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, bearing on our hearts the heavy burden of lost souls. That we would not just roll through this life like, like you know, we're walking through Candyland playing a game, but we would see what God sees. We'd be burdened like God is burdened. This is a big this is a big request tonight for us to say, God, I, 
I want to see what it is that you see. God, I want to see others the way that you see them. God, I want to carry on my heart just a, a deep, abiding burden that would give me, that would bring vision into my life to see what it is that you desire to, because burden always precedes vision. So tonight, you know, if, if you're willing to take that step, if you're willing to, to ask the Lord to shape your heart, you know, I think our ministry team here, our pastors, we talk about this. We, we don't have the ability to, to change a heart. We can give information, but, but it's not until God gets a hold of the hearts of his people that we can really be mobilized. You know, I don't think the church in Philadelphia was bigger than the group of people that have chosen to come tonight to this service to meet together and seek the face of God. I, I'm just saying tonight, what could God do with this Sunday night gathering of his people? We really did step into what his purpose is in the days that we're living in. And so, listen, I'm gonna stand tonight and because I want that. I want it in my life. I, I want nights of sleeplessness because God has burdened me for souls. I, I want for my family a greater season of generosity and sacrifice as we advance the kingdom. You know, I, I want uh, for myself uh, a more, a life that's empowered in a greater way by the Spirit of God so that more people can be touched by God's love. And I just want to encourage you tonight, if this is you, you know, I want you to stand tonight before Pastor Brennan comes out and just shares some of the stuff that we're doing in missions. If this is you, just stand with me tonight and I'm just gonna ask in prayer that God would meet us in this place and God would shape our hearts and that we would have an opportunity. And, and you know, I'm gonna pray tonight, but I'm gonna pray on behalf of all of us as uh, we give him our hearts. You just stand with me tonight if, if this is your desire as well. Father, we don't want to concede any ground to our flesh, and, and we confess tonight, God, that there is just, it's just so easy to be distracted and so easy to be embroiled in things that have zero eternal value. God, it's easy for us to, to live in a state of confusion and, and fail to, to step into that space where we set our eyes on the one who is true, the one who is the way, the holy one. And tonight, we ask together that you would help us, Heavenly Father, to see your son. Help us to see him clearly. If there are obstacles and obstructions that we ourselves have, have placed between ourselves and him. God, if we're wearing blinders tonight, just convict us. We want that. We, we want you to show us the things that we don't see in our own lives. God, how can we grow unless, unless you do that? And tonight we confess our willingness to, to humble ourselves and to repent. God, to, to confess with our whole hearts to you without holding back. God, to come to you in total vulnerability 
in the framework of your love, God. We can trust you because you love us. And tonight we do that, God, and we pray for a, a, a new season, God. You have set before all of us as individuals, but, but even as a church, open doors. God, help us by faith to walk through them. God, without demanding that you give us a, an explanation, God, without demanding from you the details, God, that we would just trust you enough to place our hand in your hand and to allow you to lead us. That's what we want, God. Take us, take us where you want us to go and help us to live in a way that honors you. God, we commit ourselves to you afresh and anew in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why don't you guys welcome Pastor Brandon tonight? Pastor Brandon. I said Brandon. I'm sorry. Pastor Brandon, your missions pastor. Pastor Brandon's cool too. Hey, everybody. Have a seat. So I'm Pastor Brandon. I'm your missions pastor. And um, I love what Pastor Derek was saying about the little church that could, right? Uh, it just really rings true in myself. I don't know if you feel this way, but so often I feel like I don't have, well, I realize I don't have much to offer, right? But God's the one that calls and equips, and it's really exciting. And uh, sometimes as missions pastors, it's like I wake up and I realize we have over 23 missionaries and church planters that we're getting to be a spiritual and financial lifeline for all over the world. That, that, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing to, to be able to say that? And, you know, mostly in Latin America, and we're prayerfully moving up into Europe with the goal of, of hitting those uh, Muslim countries that are hard to get into, right? But when you hang out with Pastor Derek, it's just you never know. The other day I caught myself on a Zoom call where he was encouraging a pastoral team in Japan, right? And you're like, how did I get here, right? And he's ministering to him. He's such a great guy. And uh, the beautiful thing about this church, right, uh, that we're a part of is I know that times are hard right now. And uh, here we are in this church here on Aquindo Road and in, you know, West Las Vegas and, and uh you just, it just hits you that we're not just focused on ourselves. We're thinking about what's going on all over the world, right? Our minds are, and our hearts are with those people that day in and day out are serving the Lord. And uh, I kind of had this phrase come to mind as I was praying about our church, and this is kind of what I see in you guys and in myself. I'm always eager to learn more so I can pray. If I can go, I go. If I can give, I give joyfully. If I can help send someone who's called, I help send them. Because I don't deserve to hear the gospel more than anyone else. And everyone should have the opportunity to respond to it, right? Everybody, I, that's the, the real burden. Everybody should have the opportunity to respond to the gospel. Even if their answer is no, right? They should at least hear it. And so, you know... I know that we don't give, we don't serve just because we don't have anything else to do. We don't give just because we enjoy seeing our bank account go down, right? We're investing in the kingdom, and that's where our heart is. So it's a beautiful thing. So why don't you do this with me? Close your eyes. Don't go to sleep. Close your eyes. I know my voice is soothing. But uh, this is kind of a journey I want to go on. This is a real journey that can happen uh, in the next few months. So first of all, I want you to imagine that you're working with our um, 
Reach Our City campaign to get 10,000 Bibles handed out here in Las Vegas on October 30th, right? You think, okay, I'm going to go talk to Pastor Brandon and talk about how I can get involved in that. And then you keep hearing Pastor Derek mention that we're praying about more church plants here in the area and in the U.S. and the world, and you think, hey, maybe uh, I can keep my eyes and ears open. Maybe I can get involved. I never, ever imagined myself serving in a church, but maybe God's calling me that direction. And I'm going to go talk and bother Pastor Brennan about that after the service. And then I think, hey, isn't that Luis guy here? Luis, are you in here? Estás aquí? In, in the back? And I heard that he just got a new building in Mazatlan. Maybe I'll go visit him and help out in February, right? My boss almost never gives me time off. But maybe this one time he will. So here we are. And then I think, well, who represents guys like Luis and his family here in Las Vegas when he's not here? What about the rest of those 22 missionaries Pastor Brennan mentioned? Who's representing them now? Let me talk about how I can maybe be a strategic partner with them to let people know about what's going on with them and pray for maybe one of them that I really want to focus on. I'm going to bug Pastor Brennan about that too. I know, yeah, I remember shoeboxes in Tijuana for Christmas. This year they're doing blessing bags. I wonder why. No, I'm just kidding. Now, they're doing blessing bags, and I want to get involved. That would be so cool and such a crazy year to be a part of that. And you know what? I'm actually going to check out the whole list of mission trips this next year. Maybe if I can't go to Mazatlan, there's one, maybe a weekend trip I can go on. But there's something. And not just because Mexico has great food either. But because, you know, maybe I could go and maybe it would just be completely life-changing for me. And a real opportunity to give back. All right, open your eyes. All right. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you so much for who you are, Lord. And Lord, we, we sit here and we don't have much to offer. But Lord, we know that you are powerful. You are loving. Your Holy Spirit empowers us. And I pray, Father God, that you would write the story of our lives with your pen. Just take it right out of our hands. We trust you completely. We're willing to let go of what we need to let go of, and we're willing to grab on to what we need to grab on, Lord, and help us not to let any, not to let any opportunity pass us by for your glory. And Lord, we really do pray that you would use us, that those people that haven't heard about what your son did for them on the cross, that they would hear about it, that they would know it, and that they would accept you and receive that eternal life in you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.